So, don't play with matches this afternoon. It's not a good idea. What strikes me about that collection of videos is how much laughter there is leading up to the moment of explosion, and then everything, you know, obviously changes. Now, in case you're wondering, everyone in these videos survived, but it is pretty shocking to see how quickly the fun that they were having turned into a disaster. And that's, of course, that's the nature of fire, in particular when you play with fire. In an instant, it can get out of control and cause all kinds of damage. God warns us about four areas of life that are like fire. They're, they're incendiary in nature. And because they're like fire, they, they not only provide some good things in our life, from warmth and comfort, but they can they get out of control. They, they can do a lot of destruction, both to us personally and those that are close to us. So last week, we began by looking at the incendiary nature of our words and how uh, just a spark, a single phrase or word can set off a relational forest fire. Today we're going to address the uh, incendiary nature of money. Next week we're going to talk about sex. And then we're going to conclude in a couple of weeks and talk about our emotions. So today the topic is money. Here's what we read in James chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. That didn't sound very good. Now, it's talking about a, a kind of a, a corrosive or, or an acid type of fire here. And corrosion is the irreversible damage or destruction of living tissue or material due to a chemical reaction. Now, what's interesting about this verse is gold and silver have been the primary forms of currency throughout history simply because of how little they do corrode. So to talk about gold and silver corroding is, is already something, something's different here. Something's off. I mean, gold is the least corrosive of all the common metals, and silver is the second least corrosive. But God clearly is not talking about chemical corrosion on actual gold and silver. He's talking about the corrosion, really, of a life and of the money that's attached to that life. He says, money will eat your flesh like fire. What what does that mean? Well, in the end, everything that we see will be no more. Money will be no more. Every currency will be worthless, completely. It's as if it completely corroded, as if acid was poured on it, and, and now it's, it's just a blackened stain. There, there's nothing left. And our bodies, our, our flesh, will also be no more. They, we won't exist in, in, a, in a body anymore. Now, right now, we need both. We need our bodies, and we need money to support our bodies. We need money for shelter, for food, and for the rest of our physical needs. And as the the money that we need flows through our hands, flows through our accounts, both that money and our lives are being corroded, eaten up hour by hour and dollar by dollar. Let me explain it this way. Where's the money that you spent last month on food? Well, it's gone. Well, where's the food? Well, it's gone too, right? Because you needed the money to buy the food, you needed the food to sustain your life, and, and now both are gone. And it's almost as if a, you know, an acid fire of some kind came along and ate up that money and ate up whatever it was used to buy. Now, that's, that's not wrong. There's nothing bad about that. That's just the nature of this life and what we need money for. But eventually, all of the money is gone and everything that it buys is gone. And God is saying, I, I want more out of your life, and I know you want more out of your life than, than just the remnants of a, of a big acid fire. We, we were created for something that lasts 
much longer than that. Now, over the course of all of our lives, a certain amount of money will pass through all of our hands. Some will have a large pile attached to their name. Some will have smaller piles attached to their name, but we'll all have some money. But what's true, whether your pile is significant or whether it's smaller, finally, every one of us will all spend our last dollar and we will breathe our last breath. And the question, of course, at that point is, what will we have left to show for all of those days and all of those dollars? Will it be a blackened spot on the ground where an acid fire burned up both the pile of money and all that it bought? Or or will there be something truly non-corrosive that's left? Something of eternal value. And what this verse is warning us is that, that if all we do really is amass a pile of money and use that money to amass a pile of things, that pile will take the witness stand against us in the end. And it will testify. That's an interesting image. Our, Our money testifying against us. Now, this is not actually going to happen, but it's saying that your money will be entered into evidence and it will say something about your life. Well, what will it testify? Well, if, if we've just consumed it and it's consumed us, then the testimony of our money will be, you've wasted your life. It's almost as if your money becomes animated, becomes alive, and and stands before God in the end and says, takes the witness stand against us and says, Your Honor, as you know, I am now completely worthless. I have no value in this life. But I'm here to testify as to the fact that this person here standing before you right now, I'm really all they have to show for their life. I'm it. You know I'm worthless, but this this was at the center of everything for them. I, I drove the agenda for their life. And, and I'm it. So I'm here to take the witness stand as the only thing they really, really cared about and the only thing they really gave their life to. And so I, I enter into testimony, me, as evidence that they've wasted their life. That's what this is talking about. Your, your money, the corrosion of your money will testify against you. And nobody wants that. And to make sure that that does not happen, God has given us three buckets for our money. No matter how much money you have, everybody gets three buckets. Now, used properly, these buckets allow us to handle money safely in such a way that it isn't just a big acid fire once everything is said and done. Mishandle these buckets, though, and you will end up as an acid stain on the pavement of human history. These are very important buckets. Now, these are not new buckets. You're already using these buckets, and that's because there are only three things that anyone can ever do with their money in this life. You can spend it. That's the first bucket. You can save it. Bucket number two, you can give it. Bucket number three. Now, spending, of course, goes to the present. Savings goes to your future. Giving goes to a future that's beyond you. It's outside of your realm. Now, God has established an order for these three buckets, and a size limit for each one of these buckets. Now, our order tends to be the opposite, opposite of God's. What's our number one bucket? Anyone want to take a guess? Our number one bucket is what? Spending. Well, let's start with our number one bucket then, the spending bucket. Spending is the largest of the three buckets, almost always. And that's not a bad thing, but 
that's a practical matter, and that is because it simply takes a lot of money to live on. Most of the money that goes through your hands will go towards shelter and food and transportation and clothing, and it just takes a lot of money to support a life. And that's okay. But whenever spending moves from being the largest bucket to our top bucket, our, our number one bucket, the, the most important bucket, our, our spending will grow to exceed the safety limits that God has established for this bucket. Now, this fact is reflected in the U.S. economic data. The average American saves 1% of their income, and they give 1% of their income. That's the average. Now, if you do the math, you'd think that then the average American, by virtue of math, would spend how much? 98%, right? 100% minus 1 minus 1 equals 98%. But that's not how much the average American spends. The average American spends 116% of their income. Well, how is that possible? We know how that's possible, right? It's called debt. Monthly payments. And whenever we put spending at the top of the list, spending is never satisfied. Spending never then is said, you know what, that's enough. If it's number one, if it's our top priority, it's, it needs more and more and more. So what are God's limits? What, what are his safety limits on the spending bucket? Well, it's not a number. God doesn't say, here's a percentage, or for you, here's how many dollars you should spend every month and no more. He doesn't get specific on this one. He gives us a description of how we view spending, how we view it in our heart. And he says, if you go beyond that in your heart, you've crossed the limit. That's too much. So we can have people that are within the limit spending varying different amounts, but it, it, it's what's going on in our heart. Here's the description that he gives in James chapter 5, verse 5, the, just a couple of verses after the one I just read. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury, and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself, yourselves in the day of slaughter. Now what he's saying is we exceed the spending bucket limit whenever we are living on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now what does that mean? Luxury, first of all. Well, what, what is luxurious and what isn't luxurious in God's eyes? I mean, is God okay with Toyotas but not Lexus? Just because we call it a luxury vehicle doesn't mean that that meets this definition. You see, because the Greek word that's used here, that's defined as luxury, literally means pleasure. And the point is not the products that we buy, but the place that money has in our hearts. What God is saying is that whenever money becomes your luxury, whenever money becomes your source of pleasure, the thing that makes your emotions rise and fall, you're living in luxury. I mean, you may be driving a 10-year-old beat-up car, but money is, it's your source of pleasure. You're living in luxury. You may be driving a very nice car, but you recognize that money is not the thing that makes you happy. You don't live for it. Your emotions don't rise and fall with your bank account every month and your investments every month. Well, then you're not living in luxury. Whenever we live in luxury, in other words, whenever our source of pleasure is money and our emotions rise and fall with money and the things that it buys, whenever that's true of us, 
we will spend too much. Why? Well, because when money becomes the key to your happiness, how much will it take for you to be happy? Well, the answer is always more. It'll take more and more and more to make you happy. Because, well, money doesn't have the power to make you happy. It can give you a little buzz, but long-term happiness, it, it simply can't grant that. And so what money lacks in power, it generally tries to make up for in quantity. And so whenever someone gets on the luxury train, whenever someone decides, you know what, money is the key to pleasure, the key to happiness in my life. They, they, they just have to keep spending more and more, and their spending goes up and up and up and up because they're chasing something that money can't deliver. It promises, but it just keeps moving the carrot just far enough ahead to the point where it's like, <gasps> you know, and, and it just, you never get there. Now, whenever you get on the luxury train, whenever it's the source of your pleasure, there's a word for that. You will become self indulgent. That's the word that's used here. In other words, the focus will be primarily about you and more for you. That, that'll be your focus. That, that's just differing amounts, but that's whenever you decide money is the key to happiness, you will become self-indulgent. Now, God says whenever you live on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence, it looks very strange from my perspective. As I'm looking from the perspective of heaven, you know what it actually looks like, God says? It looks like watching you spend is like watching cows eat. That, that's what it really looks like. How do cows eat? They eat everything they can. But most animals, because out in the wild, they just don't know how much food they're going to get and when the next food is going to come along. When they get a hold of food, they, well, they, they eat as much as they possibly can. They don't know when the next meal is going to come. Now, sadly, this fits perfectly into the goal of the rancher who sells meat by what? The pound. Therefore, the larger the cow, the more money that's being made. So you just keep putting food in front of them, and they're going to get fatter and fatter. Here's a picture of some, actually, these are dairy cows. They're getting ready to be milked again and again and again. But if it's beef cows... The sad thing is they have no idea that they're eating their way to the slaughterhouse. They don't understand that. Now, now you can't blame the cow for not recognizing this. They, they don't have the mental capacity for reflection. The cow can't just, I mean, you never see a cow with its head in the trough all of a sudden look up and go, what is going on around here? <laughs> we do this every day, but has anyone seen Fred? I mean, Fred was, Fred was right here yesterday. And now that we're thinking about it, what's happened to Dave? <laughs> you know, this is, this is strange. Now that the guy that comes and puts this food, we, we thought he was doing us a favor, but something's weird, something weird's going on here. I don't know what's really happening. See, cows don't do that. They, they don't have the capacity to do that. But what this verse is saying is you don't have cow brains. You have, you have brains with larger capacity. You, you can reflect on what's going on. You don't just have to stick your face in the trough of consuming and just... <laughs> you can look up and go, hey, what's happening? What's, what's really going on here? We can look around and see that people are dying every day. 
So we, we have the sense to know and desire that our years are supposed to add up to more than just dollars and consuming. And in the end, that the big point in life is not how much we weigh financially. This is not a net worth contest. I mean, if a, if a cow could understand that, hey, the more I weigh, the more money the rancher makes, they would recognize, <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that contest. I don't want to join in on that thing because I'm the one that pays the price for that contest. And James really, honestly, is accusing those who keep spending more and more and more as having cow brains. He says, you're fitting right into the plans of the enemy who brought death to the human experience whenever sin entered into the world. And he, the enemy, well, he's looking forward to the day of slaughter. The fatter you are, the happier he will be. So what are the limits to the spending bucket? I can't give you a number. Your number is different than my number. It's not a number. It's a lifestyle. And it's not a lifestyle even that you can look at someone and say, oh, yeah, over the top. You can be envious about their lifestyle, but you, you can't judge someone else's lifestyle. God will do that. And God says, here, let me tell you the evaluation tools I'll use. Whenever you are living on earth in luxury and self-indulgence, you've gone too far. You're spending too much. Whenever it's all about your pleasure and you've become just more about you and more, it's it's crossed the line. You need to back down. That's the spending bucket. Now the savings bucket. As I said, the average American saves 1% of their income. The Netherlands, the average person saves 7%. In France, they save 12%. You know what the average savings rate is in China? It's 22%. Guess who is poised to take over the world? I mean, they're having a hard time now, but they're, they're the economy that's growing more than anyone else and has for some time now. Why, why do we save so little as a country? Well, <laughs> because we're spending what we have buying what the Chinese make, basically. (laughs) And they're saying, thank you very much. We will save 22% of that, and we will eventually own you if it keeps going like this. Now, God has a word for this approach, this non-saving or limited saving approach. He says, that's foolish. Proverbs 21.20 says, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. You know, this was really before banking where you could set aside things in, in different forms. This person had a store, storage room that, that had some food that would last and some oil, something to eat in the future. But a foolish man devours all he has. Why is this foolish? Well, again, because we're not cows. We can look up and we can look around and say, hey, you know, the future is probably going to have some parts that are like the past. In the past, there's, there's been things that have surprised everyone. Some bad things. Some economic things that all of a sudden, people who had really secure jobs, all of a sudden they had nothing. If, if you've lived just a few decades, you, you know this. You can remember this. So God says, so, so if as you move into the future, you've got nothing saved, and everything that you you have is consumed every month? Well, you're, you're an idiot. 
That's foolish. You, you should know better than that. You don't know what the future is going to give. You don't know what's coming. Now, we, we are not to fear the future, but we are to prepare for it. And we prepare financially by saving. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you prepare for the future, but financially, you, you prepare by saving. The problem, though, is that we are a spending culture. In fact, our whole economy, we are told, is based on spending. You know, the consumer portion, the consumer spending portion of our economy is the largest portion of our economy. So you remember the president's instruction back in the 2008 financial meltdown? You know, the, the markets were imploding, the banks were wobbling, jobs were being lost. I mean, panic was, was, was on. And so as often happens in a moment of national crisis, the president gets on and addresses the nation. And, and lets us know what's, what, what, what's happening and, and tries to calm our fears. So do you remember what the president said back when the crisis broke out in 2008? And that, that announcement, I, I'll never forget it. I mean, did he say, you know, brace for pain. It's going to be a few years of, you know, really challenge as we kind of deal with some of the excesses that happened uh, before. No. Do you remember what he said? Go to your local mall and start shopping. Literally, that is what he told the nation. Get back out there. Let's get this economy going again. Start shopping. We, we, and the reason he said it is because we are a consuming culture. If consumer spending goes down, our economy tanks. So the president, almost really as a matter of national security, says go out there and start buying stuff. Start spending. So clearly, saving too much is not much of a national problem. But it is, it can be a personal problem. And there's a word for saving too much. It's in the last sentence of verse 3, the verse that we read a little earlier, James 5, verse 3. The last sentence says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Hoarding is when you've gone beyond prudent saving. Hoarding occurs when you set aside more than you need for the future. Now, of course, the problem is, how do you know where the line is between wise saving and preparation and hoarding? I mean, if you knew everything was going to happen in the future, you know, you know, I need this amount of money. And, and one dollar over is now hoarding. But we don't know that. Well, let's say, for example, if, if you knew that the world would end in one week, one week from today, how would that change what you did with your money? Well, you'd probably spend more, would be my guess. You might actually give more, but the last thing you would do is save more, right? Why? Well, you only need enough money for seven days. It would be absolutely ridiculous to save. Now you know. Okay, I've, I've only got seven more days. I don't need this much. So let's, you know, spend as much as I can. Let's be generous and give as much as I can. But I, I'm not going to save anymore because I, I know I've got enough at this point. But how much money do you need to cover your expenses between now and when you die? Well, who knows? So the common answer is probably more, right? I mean, for example, I, I'm, you know, 56 and I'm quite a ways away from retirement, but I'm at that stage where all of my friends are talking about retirement and freaking out about retirement and wondering about retirement. And so I'm joining them and I'm freaking out and wondering and talking about it. And, 
I'm, you know, I'm trying to save for retirement. That, that's a prudent thing to do. I know there will come a day when I, I will not have income if God grants me you know, enough health to see that day. And I need to prepare for it. It would be foolish not to prepare for it and save for it. But how much should I save? Well, there's a lot of formulas to help you on that one. And it depends on the formula you use. But as I've looked at these different formulas, they're helpful. But since when has the future been determined by a formula? And so I, I, I look at a formula, I do a formula, and, and then I hear someone saying, oh, but here's this X factor. And you, oh, yeah, if that happens, then, oh, that's not enough, is it? So whenever you look at all the formulas, you know what the conclusion is? I've got to save a lot more. And that's the conclusion of everyone around me. Yeah, I've got to save more. And we get into fear. But you see, if fear drives how much I save, there is a very good chance that I will end up hoarding wealth. As it says, hoarding wealth in the last days. I mean, it'd be like you've got six days left to live and you're just packing everything and saving. It's like, well, that's not very smart. But that's, when you get into fear, that's what happens. Now, you have to understand this. You will, well, most of you will never save enough to keep you from having to trust God for the future. Sometimes we get to the point where it's like, you know what, I want, I want to have enough money so that I'm, as we say, set for life. And God says, set for life, huh? He may challenge that if you're doing it independent of trusting him. So you do need to be wise, you do need to prepare, but don't let fear drive the size of this bucket or you're going to get into hoarding. How much is hoarding for you? I don't know. I have to make that decision for myself. I don't know your life. And even if I did, it, it's not my call. It's your call. But, but you need to be aware. There is a point at which God says, you know, you just gave into fear and you're just squirreling away everything you can out of fear. That's just too much. You're hoarding. So now the giving bucket. This is, for most people, the leftover bucket. You know, I haven't met anyone yet that says, I don't think giving is a good thing. I don't ever want to give. Everybody knows it's a, it's a good thing to do. It's not only good for other people, but good for us. But the problem is that once we take care of all the spending that it requires to make us happy, and once we save enough to take care of all of our fear, then we will give. What that means is, yeah, we don't really give that much, if at all. But God says, this, this is the most important bucket. This is bucket number one. Not in size, but in priority. Why? Well, because giving is the only action that has the power to limit the other two buckets. The key to the other two buckets is the giving bucket. It's the one that has power over the other ones. Giving is the one thing that you can do that that cuts the nerve of your love for money, of money being the primary thing in your life. But in order to cut that nerve, we need to give enough to alter our lifestyle. You can't just tip a little. You need to give enough so that it affects the other two buckets. If you don't give enough to do that, then I will promise you lifestyle will continue to be your number one concern. Spending will be your number one bucket. This is why our lifestyle tends to float. You know, if, if, if more money comes into our life, what happens? 
Well, suddenly we're driving nicer cars and we're living in nicer places and we're going to nicer vacations. I mean, just it's automatic. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing those things. But you don't want your lifestyle just to float based on how much money there is. You want to make some decisions about what's important and what the priorities are. Giving is the one thing that that anchors your spending and really your saving. It keep it, it if it's the first consideration, it keeps those things from just being kind of emotional or practical things that rise and fall. Now, in order for that to happen, two things need to occur with your giving. First of all, your giving needs to be planned. Planned giving. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 9 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It says several things, but one of the things it says is your giving should be the result of a decision that you've made in advance, not not an emotional feeling of the moment, and not because you're feeling guilty, and not because you're feeling pressure. No, it needs to be a part of your overall financial plan. You see, if giving has any chance to become your number one money bucket where God says it belongs, it can't be an emotional spur-of-the-moment decision. Because if it's just an emotional spur-of-the-moment decision this week, who knows where your, where your emotions will be next week? You can never make a commitment based on your emotions. A commitment is in spite of how you feel. So the giving should be the result of an already thought-out decision. I mean, let, let's just say, for example, you're sitting here today and you realize, you know, my priorities have been out of order. I've been, I've been doing the American thing. I've been, I've been spending more and more and more trying to be happy. And I've been living in luxury and self-indulgence, and, and you feel bad about that. And so you're thinking, you know what? I've got to do something. And you're right. And you're thinking about maybe giving a big gift in a few moments when the offering is received. My word to you is don't do it. Hold on to your money. Do not do that. Please don't make an emotional decision in just a moment. Take that thought and work it into an overall plan. Now, don't don't put it on the back burner. Work out a plan. You see, one of the big causes of financial stress comes from the fact that we don't have a plan. It is shocking how many people don't have a plan that they're actually doing. They, they have some goals, they have some thoughts, they, I'd like to, uh, but I mean a plan that they've, that's got traction, that has a track record that they're, they're actually doing. Very, very few people do that. And so we end up just making emotional decisions about these buckets. You know, we get sad and so the spending bucket goes up because we're trying to be happier. We get scared, so the savings bucket goes up. We get guilty, and the giving bucket goes up. And then it goes back down, and then the savings goes back down. And, then the, and it's, just, it's just a mess. It needs to be planned. If emotions drive your finances, I, I, I can promise you, almost promise you, that you will end up as an acid stain. Both it and everything it bought, gone, consumed. Now, if you don't have a plan for your money, let me tell you who does. The American retailer. Billions are spent each year by advertisers to separate you from your money. 
That's not a bad thing they're trying to do. Just know that they're thinking more about your money than you are. So you got to get ahead of this. So do you have a giving plan? What, what is it? Do you have a savings plan? What is it? How, how are you being consistent in that? Do you have a plan that determines what your lifestyle will be? Or is your lifestyle just emotionally driven or practically driven? In other words, money comes in, whoo, lifestyle goes up. Money goes down, lifestyle goes down. Sadness comes, lifestyle goes up. Do you have a plan? The problem is almost never that you're giving too much, very rarely that you're spending too much. For most people in America, it's that you're, or very rarely that you're saving too much, it, usually it's that you're spending too much. So God says, let me get you started. I'm going to fill in the first number in the first bucket for you. All the other buckets, it's a matter of your heart. I, I know where the limit is, and you probably will if you listen to what I'm saying. But in this one, let, let's just get specific. And that brings us to the second part of giving, and that is proportional giving. God gives us a percentage. He gave this number when economies were, for the most part, agriculture. Here's what, agricultural. Here's what he says in Leviticus 27.30. A tithe, which means tenth, 10%. Of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, is holy to the Lord. Now it would read something like income or paycheck or investments, whatever. The giving bucket is the only one that God gives us specific instruction on regarding the size. Why? That's because it's the number one bucket. If we don't get this one right, the rest of them are not going to get right. You can get the other ones right. If you mess this one up, the other ones will take over. This bucket is the only way you can turn money into something eternal. And God says, I know the way you are about giving, <laughs> and I know the way you are about spending, and I know the way you are about saving, so let me put the first number in. That This is the threshold. You can give more, and you should over time grow your giving. But th this is where you need to start. Why 10%? Why give 10% to God and what he's doing in this world? Well, it's because it takes about this much for most people before the priority of the other two buckets is really challenged. If you're going to give the American average of 1%, you don't really have to change much. You're not going to have to change what you spend. You're not going to have to change what you save. 1% is, well, it's, it's small. It's not going to challenge you. 10% is the point at which giving really becomes bucket number one. Everyone that I know personally that is giving 10% right now or more they have had to decide to spend less to do it. They have had to practically demote spending and say it's not as important as giving. That's what 10% does. It just, it just forces you practically, not in your heart, not in your wish, not in your desire, but practically make giving number one. For, for me, honestly, right now, I'm tempted at this point in my life. I mean, earlier I was tempted to take what I was giving the 10% and maybe a little more than that, to take that and put it towards spending because there was a lot of spending pressure. There's still spending pressure, but now that our kids are grown and gone, there's not as much as when they were younger. Now, you know what the pressure is? Retirement. So now I'm like, oh, do I have to get uh, And every time I give, it's a decision to not give into fear about the retirement thing, to do what I can, to reduce my spending so I can save, you know, a good amount but to trust God and say, God, giving's number one. 
It's, it's my giving that keeps me in check and forces me to trust God more than the size of my retirement account. It's the same with spending. Giving forces me to limit my spending. So what's your plan? Other than this 10%, you fill in the amount. That's yours. But let me give you a suggestion if you're starting out on this. It's called a 10-10-80 plan. It's a great suggestion for starting out. Give 10% of your income to God, save 10%, spend 80%. Now, maybe, maybe you're, you're beyond this, and you can have a different plan. That's fine. I, I've got a friend that's on the 90-10 plan. He gives 90% just because of where he is financially and lives on 10%. Yeah, I can't do that. So my recommendation is start with a 10-10-80 plan. You see, spending will always rise to the top unless you give and save enough to challenge your lifestyle. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting here thinking, oh, that sounds great. I would love to give 10%. I'd love to save 10% and just live on 80%. But you see, I can't. I made some lifestyle decisions, and now I'm stuck. The question is, how do you now get unstuck? Most focus on first paying for their lifestyle choices. And the thought is, when I can afford it, then I will start giving. Then I will start saving. But the problem is, you don't get out of the hole that you, were, you dug by working the problem with the same set of priorities that dug that hole. You just end up in the same place, and probably even a deeper hole. Whenever you make spending your number one bucket, that's how you get into that problem. You can't get out of that problem by leaving spending as the number one priority, the number one bucket. You've, you've got to start with this first number. And what I've seen is God begins to add his power to your life, and, and things turn around oftentimes pretty quickly. But they don't turn around until you start with the giving piece. James 5.3, again, describes something that we don't want to be true of us. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. We don't want to be that. So let me give you a practical suggestion. If you want to do this 10-10-80 plan, I would encourage that you automate the 10-10 portion of the plan. In other words, you automate your giving. You know, you set up an online draft. You do the same thing with your saving, direct deposit. And the reason this is important is because every single month, your lifestyle, your spending will challenge your big plan to give and your big plan to save. I mean, you may, you may form this plan, and then you get into the next month, and it's like, well, let's start in October. Well, not this month. Not every month. That's just what's going to happen. So every month, you're going to face a tough and emotional decision on both, your savings and your giving. Now, for me, I prefer to make tough decisions once rather than every single month. This is what automated does for me. I mean, you can stop an automated deposit at any point. You can say, no, I'm not going to save 10% this month. And stop. But you see, you have, to, you, you, you have to take an action on that. It requires action to say no rather than action to say yes. Because with a direct deposit, you've already said yes in advance. Now you have to decide to say no to giving and no to saving. And that just, you've taken the momentum away from lifestyle. Lifestyle is going to have the momentum. I mean, we are Americans. Lifestyle is king. Yeah, people tell me all the time, I can't afford this, I can't afford that. And what they're saying is, 
I don't want to drive this. I don't want to drive that. I don't want to live here. I don't want to live there. Lifestyle is, well, that, that's the top thing. Let me give you some next steps then as we wrap up here in addition to these. These are on the back of your connection card or the bottom of your listening guide. First of all, make a financial plan. And what I mean by that is a very specific plan. Put together a budget if you haven't put together a budget. There's all kinds of financial software that can help you keep track of your spending. That is critical. The second is automate your giving and your saving. Now, on the back of the connection card, it says automate your giving and your sharing. If you can figure out how to automate sharing, you're welcome to do that. That should be saving. So automate your giving and your saving. And then number three, memorize 2 Corinthians 9, 7. This is the verse we looked at just recently where it says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's pray together. Father, first of all, we, we thank you for all of the resources that you've funneled into our life. Oh, we know that we've worked hard and we know that we've, some of us have gone to school. And, but we recognize that it all comes from your hand. Uh, just a brief you know, decision on your part, it could all go away. And so we thank you for the resources you've given us. And we, we do not want these resources to eat up just our lives only and have nothing to show for them. So I pray that you would work in our hearts and you would help us to to put together a plan that reflects what you say is the way to handle money. That we would give 10%. That we would save for the future and we would limit our spending. Father, we need your help. We're, we're in a culture and a time that is all about luxury and self-indulgence, pleasure and self-indulgence. And it's just, it's eating us up on the inside like acid. We want to be different. We don't want the pile of money to testify against us in the end. Help us, we pray, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.